Hey, Intelligence Squared listeners, producer Faye Adabita here. I just wanted to let you know about our first Intelligence Squared collection, Black History and Culture. We're revisiting some of our favorite live events and podcasts from the past 20 years, showcasing great creators and thinkers, including the co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, Alicia Garza, poet and activist, Benjamin Zephaniah, and playwright, novelist, critic, and broadcaster, Bonnie Greer. We also delve into debates such as should the West pay reparations for slavery and hip hop versus Shakespeare. Just search Intelligence Squared, Black History and Culture, wherever you get your podcasts. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades – And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassat. And me, Daniel ben Corin. This week we have the American author and historian Ibram X. Kendi. He spoke to Razia Iqbal from the BBC. They spoke about his new ideas for how to combat racism. Daniel, tell me a bit more about this. So as you say, Ibram X. Kendi is a historian. He is a professor at the American University and he is the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist. It's a really interesting take about how we can uproot racism in our societies. And he argues that racism is a system and that it's not enough to not be racist, to simply not be racist yourself personally. You have to actively be an anti-racist. And he goes into a lot of fascinating detail about what that involves. We hope you enjoy listening to the episode. I'm Razia Iqbal, journalist for the BBC. Welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. Ibram, welcome. Thank you for having me on the show. Let's um, let's start by um, talking about definitions. Your book's called How to Be an Anti-Racist. Are you saying that not being racist is not enough? Just define not racist and anti-racist for us. Well, I think the more that I've researched the history of racism, the more I've been trying to figure out precisely how to define not racist. And the more I've been trying to figure out how to define not racist, the more that I've found that over the course of history, it's primarily been used by people who were charged as racist. So someone says, what you said is racist, the policy you support is racist, and the response from that person who is charged with being racist is, I'm not a racist. And and this really spans the gamut of people. White nationalists and supremacists today, when charged with being racist, they consistently say, I'm not racist. The President of the United States, no matter what he says, 
he responds with, I'm not racist. He even says, I'm the least racist person in the world. And so the more I've researched not racist, the, the more I've not been able to define it. But I can actually define racist and anti-racist. But it seems to me that not racist is, is a term of denial. Well, let's let's talk about that in in a little more granular detail. When sure. you talk about the president of the United States saying, I'm the least racist person uh, you'll ever meet, there isn't a racist bone in my body is a common thing that people who say that they don't or that they abhor racism say, as though somehow it is deeply embedded in their in their bodies. And and I wonder whether we can talk a little bit about the the fact that people take it personally. If if somebody says you're being racist, it's seen as a personal slight. And I'd like you just to explain why you think that is tangential to what it is that you're saying about racism. Well, I think I think it is tangential because people consider it to be a personal slight because of how they understand what a racist is. And so I think most people understand racist as first and foremost, a horrible, bad person. They understand racist as a fixed category and identity. That's why they say things like it's in my bones. Like, you know, you don't, your, your bones are always going to be there. Or they say it's in their, in their heart. It's not in their heart. Your heart is always going to be there. They see it as this permanent characteristic. And that is essentially not how we should be defining the term racist. Racist is is not who a person is. It's what a person is. And what I mean by what a person is, it's a reflection of what a person is saying or what a person is doing in the moment. And so when someone is saying that there's something wrong uh, or even right about a racial group, they're being a racist. When, when someone is supporting a racist policy that is reproducing racial inequity, they're being a racist. But what's interesting is you have you have many people, and I would probably I would probably surmise most people around the world say both racist and anti-racist things. So when it comes to certain issues, they think of certain racial groups as as better or worse than others. So for instance, many people think and know now that the racial groups are genetically basically the same which is an anti-racist idea. Like genetically, we're, we're pretty much all the same. But many people struggle to see and to level all the cultures of different racial groups around the world. So they see their culture as better or other cultures as worse, which is a racist idea. And so this is why people are so complex. And, 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 and that's why it shouldn't be a fixed category. It should basically be what a person is saying or even doing in the moment. A, a, a descriptive term that can be changed. Precisely. Because, you know, we're humans. What, what makes us human is our ability to change, change our ideas, but not only change, to be deeply contradictory, to be deeply hypocritical. And that's what I'm talking about. So when it comes to criminal justice, people could be anti-racist. When it comes to healthcare, they could be racist. And, and, and so I think we should, and I should say my last book, Stamp from the Beginning, I chronicled people who in the same speech would denigrate, let's say, black people in one part of the speech, which was an expression of racist ideas, and then another part of the speech would talk about the human equality, would talk about racial equality, which was an anti-racist idea. So then how would I or how would anyone identify that person? 
We can't say that person is a racist or is an anti-racist and that's what they are and that's what's in their heart. But what we can say is in the beginning of the speech, when they denigrated black people, they were being racist. At the end of the speech, when they were talking about racial equality, they were being anti-racist. Let, let's look at how you include yourself in this group of people when you say most people have held racist views and so on. You do not exclude yourself in this book, which is part memoir, part polemic, social analysis of what's required to increase the number of people who can be anti-racist as opposed to being not racist. I want to ask you, first of all, why you chose to to include yourself in, in the book. And, and then we can talk about the instances where you have regarded yourself as holding racist views. Sure. So I, I struggled for a while before I decided to, to include personal narrative in the book because I'm deeply private. And, and I knew I would be talking about some of the most shameful moments of my life. But ultimately, as I was saying earlier, the term not racist is a term of denial. And, and essential to racism itself is denial. Really, the heartbeat of racism is denial. And in contrast, the, the heartbeat of anti-racism is confession, is admission. And, and so in many ways, knowing that, I realized that I needed to, in a way, model that for people. And so in many ways, how to be an anti-racist is, is a confessional, is, is me essentially confessing and admitting the times over the course of my life when I thought of certain racial groups as as inferior. And the, the book opens with what, when I was reading it, felt incredibly painful. This admission that you were in a contest for a Martin Luther King uh, oratory competition and you were berating in this speech uh, young African-Americans. But at the time, you obviously didn't think that you were berating them. You were being cheered and everybody thought what you were saying was fantastic. And when you look back on it, you see it as a deeply racist speech that was being applauded. Just outline for us what you were saying in that speech. Yeah. So, I mean, first and foremost, I, I define any, I define a racist idea as any idea that suggests a racial group is superior or inferior or better or worse than another racial group or, or any idea that suggests that there's a problem with a racial group. And black youth are a racial group. When, when someone specifically says something bad about black youth as opposed to youth. They're racializing youth and they're expressing racist ideas. And so in this speech that I gave in, to, in the year 2000, when I was a senior in high school, yeah, I was in a Martin Luther King oratorical contest that was countywide in Prince William County outside of Washington, D.C. And I won my school competition and, and went to the countywide competition and was one of the three finalists and, and spoke on MLK Day. 2000 ended up winning the competition with this speech in which I berated black youth, in which I basically talked about that that black youth don't value education, which was a very prevalent idea in the 1990s. I, I said that black youth continue to, quote, climb the high tree of pregnancy, which was also a prevalent racist idea in the 1990s. I, I talked about that that black youth are essentially not trained by their parents to, to make something of themselves, which was also a racist idea that was prevalent in the 90s. And, you know, I can go on and on. I mean, basically, my speech was was this litany of all of the things wrong with black youth 
ironically, on a day where you had black youth giving great speeches, and it was really a showcase of all the things right about black youth. But I couldn't see that because of my racist ideas. I wonder then if we can talk about the the other people who you also include in the frame, you know, black intellectuals who many people would just assume are not racist or are anti-racist inherently. People such as W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, huge figure in, in American history, Frederick Douglass, Barack Obama, a group of uh, of people who have contributed to the intellectual thinking of America. And I, I wonder if you could tell us what it is that you think about those people that makes you pause for thought when you think about the sorts of things that they have said about the efficacy of assimilation as opposed to being anti-racist overtly. So I think, I think one, of the, one of the ways in which we struggle to have a serious and honest conversation about race across the world is people typically define racism or even a racist idea in a way that excludes them and the people that they hold dear. And so for me, I separated myself as well as people who I admire, like Barack Obama and Frederick Douglass and, and W.B. Du Bois, and laid down a definition of a racist idea. And within that definition, there, there are segregationist ideas that suggest that there is largely something genetically or biologically uh, inferior with, with, with a particular racial group. And then there are assimilationist ideas, which suggest that there's something culturally or even behaviorally wrong with a particular racial group. And, you know, my, my work primarily studies anti-Black racism and, and racist ideas. And so in the case of assimilationist ideas, you take a case of, of W.B. Du Bois, who in his famous essay in 1903 in which he called for what he called the talented tenth, this sort of talented tenth of black elites in the United States to sort of lead the race. And in his justification for the talented tenth, he made the case first that what made them talented was that they had essentially assimilated into the best of European culture. And, and so essentially he had standardized European culture and argued that we had reached this standard, unlike the bottom inferior 90th. And, 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 and he also talked about that bottom inferior 90th as having a relic of barbarism, that he, as a member of the Talented 10th, would, of course, civilize them out of. And so assimilationists are, are constantly thinking about how to develop and civilize inferior groups of people, whether those inferior groups of people are a black poor and you're the black elite, or whether those inferior groups of people are are people in Africa and you're a European. And in, in Barack Obama's 2008 speech, in which there is quite clear on race, which is quite clearly does have elements of what you're talking about, which is to do with assimilation and the importance of assimilation. Talk me through your problems with that. Yeah, so I think the what I just mentioned about Du Bois is I was specifically talking about a notion that there was a cultural problem. I think with, with 
with Obama's speech in 2008, he spoke of a behavioral problem. And most specifically, at one point, he talked about African-Americans who are sort of hanging out on the corners uh, have a legacy of defeat. And I'm, I'm quoting him directly. And, and this was a sort of a long-standing idea among Black and even non-Black intellectuals that dealing with oppressive and discriminatory conditions has caused Black people, particularly Black people who apparently are unemployed, to essentially no longer strive, that the oppressive environment has caused them to essentially not be as much of strivers as others. The problem with that is it's making this case that there's something behaviorally wrong with these people. And no one has ever proven that empirically. What is also the case and, and, and is, is the people who are, are, quote, hanging out in the corners are typically younger people, are typically people in urban areas. And these are people, typically people who have the highest levels of unemployment in the country. These are also people who are typically most likely to be mass incarcerated. And so is the problem their personal legacy of defeat, which is what an assimilationist idea connotes, or is the problem that they can't get jobs? They keep getting racially profiled and mass incarcerated, which is what an anti-racist would say. Well, let's let's look then. Let's cast this in a much bigger frame, if you like, because you also appear to be uh, saying in the book, and you're suggesting it in that last answer, that that it's capitalism that is racist. Um, that that in some way it's the policies that we need to question in order to be able to move towards being anti-racist mm -hmm. as opposed to not racist. Without question. And so when, when people ask me, how do I be an anti-racist? I mean, first and foremost, once we adopt anti-racist ideas, once we see the racial groups as, as equals, despite differences, then we're no longer going to explain away racial inequities and disparities by saying there's something behaviorally, culturally, or even genetically wrong with a particular racial group. And so then once we throw out that explanation, there's only one other explanation to understand, for instance, why Europe is so much far richer than, than sub-Saharan Africa, why black people in the United States are, are twice as likely to be unemployed as white people, why in the United States, black people, white people have 10 times more median wealth than black people, and that is racist policies. Or in the case of economic disparities, that's this combination of racist and even capitalist policies. And so then an anti-racist says, okay, precisely what policies are causing these racial inequities? And then an anti-racist would, of course, seek to get rid of those policies and replace them with more anti-racist policies. Let's explore this this issue of what it is that individuals can do, because when you talk about racist policies, mm -hmm. you are locating them just as much in the way in which people will vote for a particular political party. So in the United States, the, the Democratic Party is perceived to be progressive, but you are not you're not saying, oh, well, they're they're anti-racist. In fact, you're saying that across the board, there are there is a pursuit of racist policies that need to be challenged if we are all collectively to be anti-racist. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. I I I think most people who've read my work see that I'm in many ways more critical of, of the Democratic Party than I am of the Republican Party 
precisely because the Democratic Party presents itself as progressive, as anti-racist, as committed to the um, equality and defending the interest of its base, which are primarily people of color. Um, And and so for me, I, I wouldn't necessarily say someone should support a particular political party as much as someone should support a policy and whatever party um, or whatever policymaker is pushing that anti-racist policy that has been proven or has a great likelihood to reduce racial inequity, you know, that's what we should be supporting. But, but I should also add that policy doesn't necessarily just exist at a federal level, national level or even a state level, or even a local level. Policies even exist in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our, in our mosques. Policies exist in our home. Anything that governs a group of people is a policy. And so individuals have the ability to, to look out at the policies in their s- small institutions and change those too, as well as to support those efforts to, to, that are trying to change them, you know, at a, at a greater, more national level. Your book couldn't be more timely in the context of the overarching narrative that we have seen emerge since the election of President Trump. You, you've mentioned him once already. I, I, I wonder if you'll reflect for a moment on the way in which he has led the conversation on, on race. Mm -hmm. And most recently, I suppose we've seen it manifest in two things, white nationalist terrorism, but also the way in which he has berated Democratic Party congresswomen, four women in particular, four women of colour, three of whom were born in the United States and all of whom are American citizens. So in the context of identity and the the way in which Americans view themselves, I wonder how you how you talk about what President Trump is doing and how influential what he's doing is. So I, I, I once had a had the pleasure of sitting down with a former white nationalist, and one of the things that he told me in terms of how they recruit, and I'm specifically talking about uh, Derek Black. Derek Black is the son of Don Black. Don Black is the founder of Stormfront. Stormfront was the first major white supremacist website. And Don Black was one of the sort of godfathers of the white supremacist movement in the late 90s and and most of the 2000s. And Derek's godfather was David Duke, the grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. And who was one of the first people to text or tweet congratulations to President Trump and almost saying, you know, we now have one of our own in the White House. Precisely. And, and, and so when, when, when Donald Trump launched his campaign in, in, in 2015, this was at the sort of, for years, anti-racist activists, uh, particularly rising out of the opposition to Trayvon Martin's death and ultimately Michael Brown and Sandra Blondes. I mean, there had been this pretty massive and vocal movement of of anti-racists who were obviously not only saying Black Lives Matter, but also saying we want equality. We want 
the elimination of racist policies. We want racial justice and who were very vocally telling white racists that they were racist. And, and so Trump comes along and he says something very simple. I know all these people have been saying there's something wrong with you, but there's nothing wrong with you. And, and I, I mentioned Derek Black because he told me that their recruiting message to racist whites was there's nothing wrong with you. And so Trump pretty much has the same recruiting message that there's nothing wrong with you and your ideas are not racist and I'm not racist. In fact, I'm the least racist person you, you know, you've ever interviewed, you've ever met, you've ever known. And you know who are the real racists? They are. The people who are calling you racist, they're the real racist. And you know who is the primary group who is facing racism today? White people. And you know why this is happening? Because there are these demographic shifts occurring. Latinos are invading the country. Muslims are terrorizing. And you know what? I am going to stand up and stand up against them. And I'm going to make America great again. And those four congresswomen of color, they are representative of these people. So I'm going to go after them and defend you and, and ensure that this country remains white. And that's essentially has been his message. And, and one of the things we found by studying his voters is what distinguishes them more than anything else. It's not economic anxiety. It's not patriarchal ideas. It's racist ideas. That's what distinguishes his voters. And so, of course, he knows that. And of course, he's going to continue to peddle them and recruit them and excite them with racist ideas, even if it leads to people getting mass murdered. But you also argue that white national, white nationalist terrorism is not an outlier idea, that this is something that when the Democratic Party weighs in and says these things are terrible, the president is is making racist comments and so on, that that they too are implicated and complicit in the ideas that underpin white nationalism. I, I think so. And that's why it's not a coincidence that for one week, you not only had Trump criticizing those four congresswomen of color, but you also had some of the leaders of the Democratic Party criticizing them. Nancy Pelosi in um, particular. Precisely. And and I also think that one of the things that Trump allows for liberal whites and even moderate whites who are racist, who do think that there's something wrong with people of color, and I'm not saying all, but those of them who do, one of the things Trump allows them to say is, I'm not racist because he's racist and I don't agree with the things that he's saying. But you, in fact, have probably different kinds of racist ideas. There's not only one sort of kind. White white nationalism in the form of Trump is more of a segregate, like he has more of these segregationist ideas that, that these people are a problem. They can't be civilized. So we need to get rid of them. Well, an assimilationist would say that, yeah, but we can civilize them. They can stay here. We can develop them. Let's bring them under our wing. And, and those ideas are very predominant within moderate, liberal, and even radical cir circles uh, in the United States. And, and, and so I think that, to me, but again, people identify whether they are not racist based on who they are. In other words, I'm a Democrat, so I'm not racist, right? I'm a liberal, so I'm not racist. I'm a person of color, so I can't be racist. 
I am this or I am that, so I'm not racist, when that has nothing to do with anything. What it has to do with is what you're saying and doing. Let's go back then at that watershed moment when President Obama was elected, first African-American president. During the course of his first tenure in office, I, I wonder whether you would accept that America did shift. Because when we look back at his two terms in office and the rise of President Trump and the base that he has given voice to, you could argue that Trump was only possible because President Obama became the first African-American president. So, I mean, I do think they're related in that way. And, and I, would, I would say they're related in that way because historically, what I call racist progress, as embodied in, in Donald Trump, typically follows racial progress as embodied in, in President Obama. And so when you when barriers are broken down, and in many ways, you know, barriers were broken down, whether symbolic or even actual, through the Obama administration, typically those who, who benefited from those barriers figured out new and ever more sophisticated ways to hold people back. So that's why, particularly in Obama's second term, there was a tremendous effort to gut the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which had this provision called federal preclearance, where historically Jim Crow voting districts had to clear new voter laws with the federal government before they went into law. Um, They were able to get the Supreme Court in 2013 to agree that federal preclearance was no longer needed because apparently America was in a post-racial society. And then overnight, they put in all these new voting restrictions, like voter ID laws, like laws that essentially allowed for the polls to be, for voters on the voting rolls to be sort of cut. At the same time, they were saying (laughs) the the nation is post-racial. So they, they figured out new and more sophisticated ways. And ironically, the 2016 election was the first presidential election without the protections of the key part of the Voting Rights Act. And and so people oftentimes, they talk about, okay, you know, Trump won because African-Americans didn't turn out to vote in Milwaukee and, and Detroit and Philadelphia. But it could have also been the case that their votes were suppressed in those cities. And it has now, I think, been proven that it made a difference very specifically in, in states where it could have meant that he hadn't, did not win. I, I, I wonder though whether you, you would argue, what would you say to those people? And there are people, even inside his administration, people of color who say, actually, this is a president who's great for African Americans. Well, I would ask for evidence, you know, and, and so, and their evidence would be, well, the unemployment rate is, is the black unemployment rate is the lowest it's ever been. And then I would ask, OK, what specific policies did Trump put in place that led to that rate? And they wouldn't be able to supply any because that rate was going down by the tail end of the Obama administration. And then I would ask, so why is it that the black unemployment rate is still twice as high as the white unemployment rate? And what are you doing about that? Um, why is it the case that the racial wealth gap is growing? Why is it the case that you're not investigating police departments that continue to kill black people? Why is it the case that instead of helping poor black neighborhoods, you're calling them infested 
what are you literally doing for black people other than saying you're doing something for black people? You're in your late 30s now and you've set up a centre which is looking at uh, anti-racist research. Mm-hmm. And and I, I wonder how you are received in the world of academia because you you present as a public intellectual who is quite different to African-American intellectuals who have come before you in, in your approach and in, in your polemic. So I, I would say it's across the board <laughs> in terms of, you know, how I'm received. Of course, there, there, there are people who are pretty excited um, and supportive, uh, you know, of of my work um, or of supporting very deliberately named anti-racist research and, and, and policy. And they recognize that there really is no such thing as race neutral research or policy that the research and policy we're, we're pursuing is either racist or, or anti-racist. Of course, you have other people who, who do not think a scholar should be, seeking to be so, I should say, a scholar should not be so public. A a scholar should not be engaging the public on this level. A scholar should not be writing in trade presses or writing for the Atlantic. But it's really Um, important to you that you do that. Well, for me, I mean, I I just, I, I, let me say, I actually consider myself more of a a producer of public scholarship than I do a public scholar, than I consider myself a public scholar. And, and this distinction for me is a public scholar is known by the public, while someone who produces public scholarship, public scholarship actually impacts the lives of the public, whether conceptually or their actual material life. And so I'm trying to produce scholarship that actually helps people very directly in ways that they can see it. And of course, in order to essentially do that, you have to step outside of the walls of the academy. You literally have to get into the weeds of, of, of policy change. And so, so that's what I'm going to do, even if it's against the traditions that, that some scholars still hold. The, the, the fault line that is race in America has really not faded, however, however you look at it. And I wonder how you reflect on, on your own identity as an American, because anyone who's a person of colour in America has had their identity challenged, not least by the the commander-in-chief, the president of the United States. And the fact that there is now or continues to be shaky ground on which people of colour in the United States walk, how do you navigate that? So I recently wrote a piece in The Atlantic entitled Am Am I an American?, And I really sought to answer this question because clearly, according to to President Trump, people of color are not truly Americans. And even if we're U.S. citizens like those four congresswomen of color, we can be told to go back to a land we weren't born in or a land we don't consider home. And so one of the things that I sort of talked about in that piece is is African-Americans have long been debating this. So you've had some African-Americans who said that we are an American, and since we are Americans, we deserve equal rights and equal treatment. And then you've had other Americans like Malcolm X, uh, who once said, I'm neither a Republican nor a Democrat nor an American, and got sense enough to know it. And, and, And these people would say, if I was an American, 
then I would have equal rights and equal treatment. And so I think I really can't even answer that question because in many ways I can see the position of both. And in many ways, I hold both positions. When you reflect, we're talking in the week that uh, Toni Morrison passed away. And, and I, I, just, I just wonder how you reflect on someone who, such as her, who, you know, she was unique. She embodied a place that, that really nobody else did, quite apart from the fact that she was the first African-American woman to win the Nobel Prize. But she was also a single mother. She was also a, a, a person who had a career while she was writing the, the books that she wrote. And I, I can recall the way in which she was reviewed when she first started writing and how she is remembered today. Do you regard that as progress or not? It's, it's, it's hard for me to say because it almost makes me think of Muhammad Ali, right? How in, in the 60s he was so vilified. And and now he's 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 praised, or or even Martin Luther King, who was considered a communist and an outsider and and anti-American, but of course now he's praised. And and certainly the same thing for for Toni Morrison, who early in her career, um, and and for most of her career, you know, received quite a bit of challenges to the point, you know, I can even remember when she wrote Beloved, uh, a group of of black women decided to write an open letter in the New York Times in the late 80s demanding to know why this great American writer had not won a National Book Award or a Pulitzer Prize. Fortunately, she would win one that year. But it's, it's, that, to me, is, is, is interesting. But I will say, throughout her career, she was praised and admired by Black people, particularly Black women particularly Black women writers. And, and I would imagine and I suspect that she was not looking for admiration from the white critic. And she actually spoke very pointedly and, and actually challenged us, and when I say us, Black writers, to when we write, to not have that white critic on our shoulders. To reject the white gaze. To reject the white gaze. And, and so... You know, I think it's, I think, but, and when I say black women, writers in particular, um, have, you know, long admired her and recognized her greatness, they are the ones who are primarily writing the best tributes to her right now. And, and, and I think, I suspect that, that, that the fact that these great black women writers who admired and were inspired by, and some of them who were closely mentored by Toni Morrison, who, who are now at the top of their, their fields, able to sort of write tributes to her is, is in and of itself, a, you know, a reflection of her legacy. And, and, and then I think Americans, whether black women or not, who really are able to, to step away and really see the sort of trajectory um, of her life, the impact of her literature, we'll see that she's quite possibly one of the greatest, if not the greatest, American writer ever. And certainly, um, you know, the last 50 years. Do you regard yourself as an optimist in in the field in which you are are committed to? Because, you know, your your radicalism challenges the the kind of firmament of America and I and I wonder whether you feel that you are ultimately someone who who can see progress 
in your own lifetime? I think if I wasn't a student of history, it would be much harder for me to be an optimist. But as a student of history, you know, I know that, you know, in 1791, Haiti was the most profitable uh, colony in the world. And of course, they were colonized by the French. And 13 years later, this, this, this most profitable colony in the world defeat ar- defeated armies from, from France, England, and Spain in succession for these people to, to win their freedom. And if somebody would have said in 1790, uh, sitting in a coffee shop in Paris or, or London, that by 1804, <laughs> the people in Haiti would declare their freedom after beating in succession some of the greatest armies in the world, people would have said that that's crazy. And, and if, that's the first black revolution precisely. of Toussaint Louverture, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and if, you know, if someone said that in 1860, that, that five years later, that slavery, chattel slavery in the United States would be no more, and that the richest and most powerful group of people in the world at the time, Southern white slaveholders, would be devastated uh, as a community, people would have said that's impossible. There's no way that could happen. If, if, and even the, the a more recent example of um, 250 uh, people leaving Mexico City and landing on the shores of Cuba, and instantly half of their their men being wiped out by by Cuban colonial forces, and they run up in the Sierra Mountains. And a few years later, those 150 people are able to defeat a standing army of 10,000 supplied by the strongest and most powerful military force this, this world has ever seen in the U.S., and they would win 90 miles from the U.S. Again, people would have thought that that's just completely impossible. And, and obviously, many people thought Trump's election right was impossible. And, and, and so I think that history allows me to see that the impossible has consistently happened. And, 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 but then also, I know philosophically that you have to believe in the potential for change in order to essentially do the hard work to carry it out. Ibram X. Kendi, thank you so much for speaking to us. It's been fascinating. Thank Thank you. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.